You can never underrate sampling. It's quite different when you're all in lockdown and no one has a chance to meet anyone or they're like, get away from me, what are you giving me? (laughs) Some kind of like, something that Bill Gates has designed to kind of like chip them or something. Um, So... We've had a few of those, don't worry. Have you really? You know, customers always write in that. Yeah, well, exactly. You've had people think that you're Bill Gates's sort of next venture, <laughs> microchip boundless. <laughs> Bill, get off the line, mate. I'm busy. I'm trying to chat to Oliver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. Kathy Mosley, ex-commodities trader turned foodie, didn't set out to become an entrepreneur. In fact, she wanted to be a dinner lady. Kathy, co-founder of Boundless Snacks, started her healthy, unique snack brand in 2017 after leaving her job in the city. Risky or the right decision? Now in more than 3,000 stores and over 10 countries, Boundless can be found in Holland and Barrett, Sainsbury's, John Lewis and Pret. I ask, why throw the towel in on a city career after 20 years? What's it like coming from nothing and building something? And how did you bring something totally unique to the market? Ladies and gentlemen, Kathy Mosley. Oh, Oliver, it's an absolute pleasure to be invited and thanks ever so much for having me. No problem. So, Cathy, I've looked online. There's a lot of online publications, a lot of interviews that you've done. There's been questions about how you switch off, how you start your day. One of them asked what your favourite airline is. I'm not interested in any of that. I want to know the real Cathy. I want to know what it was like from an upbringing point of view when you were a child. So what was it like when you were little? So I grew up in the East End of London in Bethnal Green and came from a real working class background. I mean, I know there's big issues whether you say class anymore, but that's how I grew up and I was quite happy to be working class. Um, Yeah, so grew up in that kind of environment with like my mum and dad and and my brother and my grandparents living right nearby and kind of a real, probably a real sense of community. And I think I've probably said this before, but um, not many people want to admit that you didn't have much. Didn't have much. We were, <laughs> we were positively poor. Um, positively and, poor. I like that. That's nice. You know, but but yeah, we we. But I grew up in a in a um, strong work ethic environment. Yeah. That's for that's for certain. What did your parents do? Well, my my mum actually ended up working for Unilever in like okay. kind of I guess like processing orders, which was in the West End which was opposite Selfridges, which was absolutely bloody amazing. So you ever, you ever watched Mr. Selfridge? I love Mr. Selfridge. Yeah, yeah, I love Mr. Selfridge. It's great. I love that store. I still love that store now. But yeah, so this year, but um, my dad um, worked in an accounts department and then went to night school to become an accountant. Wow. So I think my parents were kind of both pushing the level of what they could do from where they'd come from. So I think mm-hmm. that probably was instilled from me into me and certainly into my brother as well and but yeah we kind of like um yeah I was that just that whole um living in a house that you knew you had to work you knew yeah. you had to push further and that you couldn't rest on your laurels really because your first job out of school it was it was working in a care home basically serving people yeah. food essentially <laughs> wasn't it yeah yeah my dad was like I had to go and get a part-time job from like school because I think it was like about <laughs> well, I was 15 so this is why yeah. I was in school wow okay. and my brother my brother had his um my brother had his paper round and um which was quite interesting when you're delivering to flats I mean yes. you know that, that's quite a lot of exercise but, it's a lot of um, steps <laughs> yeah but I, I actually I was really I was really happy to go and work in the care home and like kind of like I used to have to cook meals for the um the the people that were in there but because I had such a great relationship with my grandparents and grew up with lots of older people around me I, I felt quite natural in their company but yeah straight from school leave school at like 3 30 off to the care home for a few hours amazing and what did your grandparents do then in their previous life so my my grandfather was a master plasterer oh wow um so he was he was really um, with his hands really talented so he kind of used to do lots of work on like the home office or museums and recreate kind of like 
how buildings should have looked or restore them and stuff like that. And my grandmother was um, a milliner by trade. That's what she did. But during her last year, she used to serve the teas at a local <laughs> kind of uh, a local place that used to make clocks in Shoreditch, which of course right. is now all hip and trendy. That's very cool now, I'm told. Oh yeah, so you know, it's where all the cool cats hang out. Yeah, I think like Hoxton, Hackney, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. then it was a real yeah, it was tough. It it wasn't so cool then. Did that make you hungry though? Excuse the pun with regards to serving food, but did that make you hungry to kind of succeed in terms of starting a business and going into a world that that maybe was slightly more affluent? Because actually, your 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 goal was to be a dinner lady, but you ended up working in the city which is a bit different <laughs> yeah um yeah absolutely i mean when you um like you say there's 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 lots of things people tell you about kind of like living in poverty and it's great and you can all sing around the piano and all that <laughs> right but it's bloody tough yeah, and, I can yeah, imagine. i think most people will want to try to escape it i mean you know and, we, and we're certainly Certainly when I grew up in like the 80s, which was obviously Thatcher, yeah. it's all about you can be anything you want to be and that kind of stuff. You can create your own success. So, yeah, definitely wanted to escape it. That's that's for certain. Not to not have the friends I had or anything like that, but just to, yeah, escape the fact that you've got one pair of shoes for the rest of the year, that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why not? I only wear one pair of shoes. It's just efficient, frankly. You don't have to mess around with thinking. You're tight, Oliver. You're too tight. (laughs) They haven't even got laces. They're actually just boots. But uh, (laughs) in terms of the skills that you you learned when you were, I suppose, when you were a little or when you were being brought up, you know, being on the breadline, did you learn skills that you kind of transferred into or transferred into into the business world? Yeah, I definitely think so. So you definitely learn to rob Peter to pay Paul. You know, yeah. when you're when you're younger, okay, right, you've got to pay this bill then, but, you know, you can't really afford to, so how can you pay that sort of stuff? So I think you learn to kind of cash flow, cash yes. flow, which is important to every business, but certainly is important to you as an individual when you're trying to balance bills. Yeah, my, my, um, my dad used to make me count with Smarties, um, <laughs> which, like, when I was a kid, he used to have these tuba Smarties and let me count, make me count with them every week and play algebra. And if I didn't get it right, they went back in the tube. So that kind of stuff. But yeah, and I think you learn to um, be a little bit harder, Yeah. quite honestly. I think you, you know, you learn a little bit more about surviving and what's really is a problem and what isn't. And I suppose it gives you that kind of, well, you, with the greatest respect, started from nothing. So if it all goes peak tong now, actually you just, you kind of just go back to where you started, I suppose. But yeah, you've got nothing to lose. Literally got nothing to lose, but you had yeah. a lot to lose when you decided to not become a dinner lady and go into the city because you were there for 20 years. You were trading commodities, you know, in Canary Wharf. You know, that's decent money. And then you just decided, actually, it's not for me. I'm going to go into the world of snacks. You know, you had a lot to lose at that point. Why did you do that? Well, I think probably most of my colleagues thought I'd had a lobotomy um, <laughs> as to what you're giving this up. You've got to be joking. And um, I think, I think to be fair, I mean, yeah, I traded commodities for like about 25 years, um, worked for all, probably all the major banks that they're, that most people would know at one stage or another. And, you know, it was quite senior at that level when I was decided to leave. But I think, you know, I joined that when I was 16 and I was 38, 39 when kind of like I was getting towards the end of that. And I think I kind of had this feeling for a while that I didn't quite feel right for me anymore. I was tired, I think. I was tired of the role and I was tired of the situation that we were kind of you know always in and probably never actually apart from making money which I know that sounds great and everything else but you weren't actually doing anything there was nothing nothing that really meant anything and then I think probably seeing the 2008 financial crisis seeing the kind of difference that that kind of brought to the environment I think I just kind of had fallen out of love with it and I think when you fall out of love with something it's really hard 
to do it, especially when you're doing like 14 hour days, 15 yeah. hour days. It's it's hard. Because I hear stories of people in the in Canary Wharf that do the magic roundabout, which they literally go to work, they do some work, they obviously go home, but they sleep in the cab on the way home. They shower, change, and go and go back to the office. And that seems to be the way of life. Now, arguably, as an entrepreneur, you kind of are working 14 hour days anyway, so it's not dissimilar. But I suppose you're in control of your own destiny to a certain extent. Yeah, but I think, yeah, well, one, you do more than 14 hour days. So anyone who wants to start their own business, forget about thinking you'll ever have a day's holiday again, you know, (laughs) but all that kind of stuff. And you will always be working. But I think the thing, the thing is, is it's the passion, isn't it? It's the passion for what you're doing, because passion will carry you a long way. You know, the belief in what you're doing, the belief in the fact that you can make something of this, make a difference, do something that no one else has done. All of those things that that's unbelievable, unbelievably powerful. And it's very different, I think, when you work for somebody else. I mean, look, I think there are people out there that do a professional role for a company that, you know, it just fits all the boxes for them. And I think that's amazing. But most of the time, I think that's rare. I think we all are just on the hamster wheel. And it's really lovely to be able to break free and get on your own hamster wheel. (laughs) Build your own wheel. And and the things that you took from being a child into the the world of commodities, your dad obviously taught you how to play with Skittles, etc. And you took that in and you can trade and you can make money and you can do numbers. What you took from the world of commodities into Boundless, what did that look like? From a non-commercial point of view, I think I took in, um, I took from more of a personable point of view is the fact that it's really important to have respect for your team. I think it's really important to listen to, to your team and make sure you work as a team. And too much individualism can really be a difficulty in a business. Now that I think is reflective, whether it's you know a global conglomerate or whether it's like, you know, an eight-man team startup or a three-man team startup. So I think I took that first and foremost. And then I think I took, from a commercial point of view, I think you can see all the big things that happen in a major conglomerate that don't work, and that's mainly red tape. You know, I think I realised that being in a small team, you could be much more agile, and being agile would... would enable you to maybe get ahead of the big guys they might have the money but you've got you know your feet on the ground and I think I think there's lots of things I took from that and and I also took the fact that you know anything's possible I mean I joined the city at 16 I got to the level I did I traveled the world I lived abroad you know I was paid very comfortably and that's from some girl coming out of Bethnal Green with just GCSE so you know, I reckon I could crack it in the stack world. Why not? hundred percent. You've got GCSEs. That's more than I've got. I've only got I one. Know. Like, amazing. <laughs> you say you got to a certain level. You never alluded to what level that was. What level did you get to in the world of, of trading? I was a senior director of trading at one of the major banks. So I had about 30 people underneath me. Um, I used to trade for like hedge funds, CTAs, yeah, yeah. those kind of portfolios. So that would have been, you know, fairly senior, dealt with a lot of money, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know... Like I say, I I get I get more challenged now in running boundless and every day than I did then. That's I, I would say, definitely. Yeah, hundred percent. And when you came out of, of the city then, you must have been in a fairly comfortable financial position to take a hedge on on essentially starting this business. Did you have to go through any sort of seed fund or did you just pump in essentially the cash you had? No, I was, you know, like I say, I was really lucky on that element because I know one of the worst or the most difficult thing, I think, one of the hardest things to start up your own business is like, oh, how am I going to pay my bills? And believe me, obviously, I understand that from back from my childhood. So I get that. (laughs) So, yeah, I was. I was really lucky. Been there, done that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Been there, done that. Didn't want that shoe again. But the, um, yeah, yeah, obviously, I was lucky that I could afford to start up my own business in, in that way and back myself. I also, I'm married, so I also had somebody with an income that could pay our bills also. I didn't have any children, which made that easier for me. But um, yeah, I, I took my own money and invested what I had and my time, of course. And then along the way, as we've gone along, we've obviously raised capital because 
I should probably shouldn't say that, but it's always nicer to play with other people's money than your own. Oh, I can imagine entirely. Um, <laughs> I tend not to play with other people's money, but I can imagine it would be really nice to do that. Yeah. <laughs> not nicer, you know. But yeah, I think I think the thing is with any startup, or certainly in what we do is um, you're always trying to grow the brand. So you'll always need more money. You'll always need more money to a certain level. So, you know, there's a there's a point where you think that, you know, you've taken the risk as far as you can. It's a different play that you need to take now. So, yeah, I was lucky with that. And if you didn't come out then with a bit of cash, a bit of a bit of sort of liquid, what would you have done? What would you say to people that simply don't have any money to put into a startup of their own? Beg, borrow. Try not to steal if you can help it. <laughs> At least don't I'm admit sure, it. If you I'm do. sure a few of my family members will be able to help you there. Um, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I I think um, I think look, there is always ways around yeah. it. There are always friends that would be happy to try and back you. I mean, even if it's a few hundred quid, you know, just kind of that way that would really help. You know, juggle as much as you can. You'll be surprised if you want something that much and you've got a great idea. You'll be surprised what other jobs you can take on in the meantime to make ends meet. Cut the cloth. I mean, literally get rid of all the extra add-ons that we have in our everyday life, which seems hard. But, you know, there's no pain. You know, there's no game without pain, really. And I think you've, you've got to love and want this quite a lot and I think it's possible yeah. if you do yeah 100% and, and when you left the world of the city then you started up Boundless you've been going roughly four years now but you seem to be taking on the world pretty well you're in 3,000 stores 10 different countries you know John Lewis you're in pret there's tons of different outlets that you're in how did you go from city trading to opening the doors of retail I think I'm never backward in coming forward Oliver I'm quite happy to put myself out there and have a chat um, yeah, I mean, just literally, we I kind of found a manufacturer, which took ages. Uh, that was probably one of the hardest bits because obviously I developed um, our activation in my kitchen. So I needed to con- convert that to a manufacturer. That was a really hard bit. That took ages because no one ever wants to take a risk on you, you know, when you're a startup and stuff like that. So that was quite hard. So once we had, we developed all of that and got a package, I went to the speciality Fine Food Expo, wow. which was held at Excel. Yeah, put a. I think it was like you could get you could get a stand for like I think it was four hundred quid if you were in the startup zone, and didn't have a, a listing, didn't have a distributor, didn't even really have any SRPs, which is like shelf ready packaging where everything's meant to fit in, and kind of built a stand from some decking that I got out of B and Q, kind of found some um, um, warehouse that could make me, we we have masks on our brand and I found a, a warehouse guy, sweet talked him to making me a cutout of our mask that I could hang on the back yes. of the stands and um, just went to this trade show and literally practically rugby tackled anybody that walked past <laughs> telling them that, they were going to miss out on the best stack ever if they didn't come back and try. Force feeding. And yeah, and and from that we um, we got some listings and it it grew from there really. That's I mean you make it sound I say pretty simple apart from the fact you're building the stand out of decking from B and Q. But you know it, it is difficult to open these doors and maintain these doors uh, when, once they are open. I suppose. So how do you make sure that your product sells in places like John Lewis, for instance? Yeah, I think I think I think. Yeah, there's two stages there, isn't there? I think it is it isn't easy to get through the door. I think it's easy if you've got a product that has a real USP. And if that USP speaks to the current customer and or is relevant to what's going on currently, I think then you've got a chance. I think if you're just selling the same thing repackaged and you don't have a USP, I think that's quite difficult as a startup. I think you're fine if you're like, you know, the likes of PepsiCo or Coca-Cola and you can just jump on a bandwagon because you've yes. got loads of money and it's not going to matter. So I think yes. you've got to have a real USP and you've got to you've got to know your brand's purpose. You've really got to know that because if you don't know your brand's purpose and what you're delivering, then how else is anyone else meant to understand that? I think in terms of keeping people buying your product, well, now there's a whole different realm 
of how, you know, people now attack that in a different way. You know, you can never underrate sampling, you know, get someone to try your product and the chances that they'll like it and then will repurchase it. Well, that's that's great, but it's quite different when you're all in lockdown and no one has a chance to meet anyone or they're like, get away from me, what are you giving me? <laughs> Some kind of like something that Bill Gates has designed to kind yeah. of like chip them or something. Um, so we've had a few of those, don't worry. Have you, you really? Know, customers always write in that. Yeah, well, exactly. you've had people think that you're Bill Gates's sort of next venture, <laughs> microchip boundless. <laughs> I'd love it really if they thought we were. I'd be like, yeah, yeah I'm all over say. it. Bill and I are like chatting all day long. Yeah, BG to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, Bill, get off the line, mate. I'm busy. I'm trying to chat to Oliver. Yeah, the um, I think yeah, yeah, you get you know that whole sampling thing when people are in different. But I think that's really key. But I think what's what's now really you know driving people staying in a in a in your eye line is is social media. Yeah, it's it's analytics it's understanding your customer it's reaching them on a different platform you know we we spend our lives on tech now and that's how you need to reach your customer i think you know we talked before about like magazines and things like that that used to be a way of reaching your customer letting them know advertising on the side of a bus and stuff like that and above the line marketing and i think that's you know maybe it works it's not very measurable but you know, what is measurable is uh, digital tech. 100%, 100%. And I suppose looking back at that eureka moment when you came up with, when you came up with Boundless, essentially, do you remember that? Because you've got, a, I think you've got a founding partner, haven't you, called Katie Wake? Yeah, well, Katie, Katie um, originally started working with me at the beginning. We, we, we kind of, although she doesn't work in the business anymore, no. but um, she had other family commitments, which is fair enough. But Love her loads. If it wouldn't be for her, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have got to this point. But um, yeah, she um, we kind of just like just used to chat about food and cooking, and then we kind of like ran this uh, street food stall for a little while for about six months to a year, and um, just kind of understanding how people like to eat and why they need to eat a certain way and. And what happens in that time, of course, is that you don't actually get to eat because you're serving people food. So you end up eating your own. Pro so we used to make these nuts and seeds and I kind of got into gut health. And that's how it naturally because I got diagnosed with um, celiac and nice. um, dairy intolerance. And I'm gutted because I love bread. And I absolutely love dairy at times. Do you know what I mean? I understand, you know, but it doesn't love me. And um, so I kind of looked a lot more about looking into a product that kind of looked after your gut. And so, yeah, and that is how Boundless developed, really. So it was an organic yeah. kind of turn up, really, yeah. it, rather than actually thinking that is what we wanted to do or that's what I wanted to do. But um, Had you left your job at the time, though, in the city or was that in and oh, around? Yeah, I left it by then. I knew I wanted when I left the city, oh. I knew I wanted to do something in food. I right. knew that. And I knew it was something to do with snacking because I was so used to sitting in an office for 14, 15 hours a day on my butt, mm. like everybody yeah. else did in the office. And what used to come past in the afternoon to give you a pickup was, you know, the Harry Bows. Is it, was it really? I thought it was in the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of that. <laughs> You know, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know that. Yeah, exactly. That was well, I've heard that. I don't know that I've heard that through through friends of friends of friends. Well, I, all I can say is allegedly that happens quite a lot, but I think I saw a lot of people with some issues in the loo. Yeah, well, indeed. So you went into Boundless. Boundless is much, much better. But in terms of when you started in your living room or in your kitchen, I was speaking to the... Uh, the son of the founder of Lush only a few weeks ago. And similarly with his parents, they were starting Lush in, in their bedroom, in their living room. And, you know, they had lots of products around. What was it like for you? Did you have a massive stirring pot? And were you kind of coming up with all these concoctions? Or, you know, how did you actually figure out what you wanted to do with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lowe's, I mean, I love, I like I say, I really love food. And I'm fascinated by flavour. I'm fascinated by how flavors, certain flavors marriage with each other, you know, and why they marriage with each other. What's an undertone? What's an uptone? You know, what, what gives you zing? What gives you bite? What's, what's the perfect tsunami? You know, <laughs> and I, I love that. And I love the play of taking kind of 
old recipes from from the west and mixing them with the old recipes from the east yeah i feel there's that that really amazing flavor combinations that we can play with so yeah it was kind of like you know i felt like kind of like chef on the muppets you know dooby 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 <laughs> doob, doob, doob. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah, I'm just like that. Ooh, do, 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 do. It was just great, wasn't it? You know, I used to love Chef, and yes. um, yeah, I, I, it was. It really was kind of like something out of you know bubbling and kind of. Mm. Oh, what about this? What if you added this? And what if you changed that? And a little bit more of that. And then I think the hardest point after coming up with you know loads of flavors, thinking that this would be right or this wouldn't be, and knowing which nuts and seeds at the time when we just had nuts and seeds what would balance each nut or seed better but it was then remembering what we put in chef's pot you know (laughs) oh my god how much of that did we actually put in there how much of this you know oh my god why didn't we write this down (laughs) oh god now we've got to come up got to remember it did you ever come up with something that was just brilliant and you couldn't remember what it was yes (laughs) <laughs> and I'm yes I'm gutted yes absolutely and uh, I still can't remember exactly the formula even though I keep trying to work on it nearly every week oh really it's still <laughs> something that you're trying to recreate it was so good you just don't know what it was yeah yeah because I think the thing is there's there's a real fine balance of making something taste amazing mm-hmm. and it only needs that little bit more of a tweak of this or less of that in order to create that and you know what makes something you know that addictive mm-hmm. in in you know how you'll feel because we we're all such emotional eaters aren't we we we're, we're so emotional we we love the flake you know we love the sensation that it creates in the mouth or the sensation of the actual shape of the product that's going into our mouths, you know, hence why Maltesers are round. Yeah. You know, they're not round just for a gimmick. They're there for you because of the sensation they create. But yeah, yeah I just, I'm fascinated by that. Absolutely fascinated. Did you ever have any kind of massive cock-ups in the early days? And I mean, going four years, you're still trying to figure out the recipe that you think was the best recipe to date. But arguably, have there been any major business mistakes that you've made? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we make cock-ups every day. We're a start-up. Um, a start-up or a cock-up? Exactly. <laughs> I think the thing is, and probably half the mess-ups we're making, we don't even know we've made. That's yeah. the bloody problem. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, things like we made too much packaging for um, than what we needed um, at a price point that wasn't right. So that was a real financial kind of like stick, which really hurt for the first year. We commercially got our pricing right, uh, wrong, sorry, at the beginning, which we were too expensive. We knew we needed to be cheaper in terms of an RRP, but we couldn't quite afford it. And that really hampered us for a while. That really kind of like, yeah, stopped our progression Whereas what we should have done was just held off and got our price point to the right RRP and then gone for it. And I think our acceleration would have been better. How did you get that price point down then? We got it down by the fact that we invested more in terms of being upfront money to buy more packaging, which of course made every every packet cheaper, which meant of course we could could push our price point down. And that made a really big difference. So that was the world of the world of hedging again then that you you put in place exactly i would have been fired for my old job if i'd done what i'd done this well that's because it was their own money it wasn't somebody else's (laughs) (laughs) you could have really hedged if it was someone else's money (laughs) exactly i would have been perfect i would have definitely had that right yield curve you'd have been doing it for 30p um, exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that and i think probably our biggest listing mistake which I think is actually quite important for lots of people, is um, we were listed by Ocado in about the first two months of us actually having a packet. And um, obviously we were like jumping up and down. This is amazing. We're, we're doing it. We're, we're going for it. And uh, we completely cocked it up because, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It took us ages to get back in. But thank you but, Thank you very much, Ricardo. We love you now. But, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, um, yeah, we cocked it up because we didn't have a clue how really how they worked. We didn't know anything about online and deliverables online. 
we didn't have the marketing spend to back us up being listed and we didn't people didn't know who we were and there you are as a product online in a big you know the biggest online supermarket as such um without any money to back up any ads or discounts all the stuff i think you're just gonna get lost and uh we just thought, of course, everyone's going to know who we are, right? We're, we're boundless, activated stacking. <laughs> we're, we're it. This is it, you know. But it, we learned a lot from that. Yeah. And, it, and you got back in there. How did you get back into Ocado? Was that just because you were slightly more mature and you had the ability to, to actually practice what you kind of were selling, I suppose, or at least market it? Probably because we're the most amazing snack in the world, Oliver. That's probably why they put us back in there. See, you, um, were, you did work in stocks because I'd, I'd like to buy now from you. You're exactly like Wall Street. <laughs> do you want the most amazing snack in the world? Yes, I do. Boundless. Probably, I should have said probably, shouldn't I? Probably, I should have done the probably, Carlsberg yeah. thing. Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. We just we just had the um, we had the right commercials to be quite honest yes. with you. That's how we 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 made it right. But also because, and I and I truly believe this is because we are you know this is what we do. We're a gut health product, and now everybody is talking about gut health gut health is there's much more awareness than there was when we started in 2018 20 end of 2017 2018 and it's easier to resonate with the consumer with a gut health message whereas before you know that was just really left to yakult yeah. and those guys you know, <laughs> that kind of, a little bit yeah. of live yogurt Actimil, yeah. <laughs> exactly whereas you know it's 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 probably in a lot more everyday things i mean i don't think you could pick up your phone, read a publication or listen to the radio without someone talking about gut health now. In terms of the sort of scaling too quickly, I suppose, Ocado was a prime example of how you got into a large uh, distributor and actually you were too small at the time. What other scale issues were there? Because you can scale too quickly and it seems like you guys kind of almost did. Yeah, you can scale too quickly. I think also, I think it's the classic bit that people will talk about, like doing SWOT analysis and I think what we also had at the time was our manufacturer probably wasn't big enough to scale at the potential rate. And there you are setting this business plan and you're forecasting what you can do. And then you're like, yeah, and we have to make a million bags a week. Oh, my God, we could only make 10. I mean, how are we <laughs> going to do that? You know, so, yeah, I think it's that, isn't it? I think you kind of like because you love something, you're so passionate about it, you you need to rein yourself in. And I think it's really important. I've got Talia, who works with me now, who's a commercial director and a shareholder of Boundless. Um, she's great at reining me in because I'm quite like, come on, yeah, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this, let's do that. I'm quite, you know, flying by the seat of my pants. And I think that's probably back to what I used to do before and all that kind of dreaming big. But I think it is important to have that inner voice or if you can't have your inner voice, you need somebody on your shoulder reining you back because you I think certainly for a startup as well you can get kind of blown in all directions and scattered across so many different kind of areas to sell your product yes and you know I think it's really important to probably really concentrate on certain areas that you know you can grow Mm -hmm. and um yeah Make sure you're reined in a bit. I think. <laughs> and as a, as a female at the top of business, I suppose in terms of your I suppose, your fundamental business, but arguably in your industry, do you come up against challenges that you think that that your male counterparts maybe don't come up against as much? Um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm probably quite alpha female in my <laughs> in my way and yes. my direction. So yeah. that probably helps me. A little yep. bit, to be quite honest with you. And I think probably my baptism of fire of 20 odd years in the city definitely helped me deal with um, any kind of difference between um, equality between men and women. Yes. Um, I think you do. Yeah. I think I think there's still, you know, the vast majority of, you know, investors, VCs tend to be male operated. So I think you've kind of got there's that still that old school mentality, I think, in terms of female um, investment. I think I'm probably a safer investment bet, and I'd be quite honest, it's because I'm a certain age and I won't be having kids. <laughs> so that probably helps, you know, because there is also that umbrella that people worry about that in terms of investment, that people might change their mind, yeah. that kind of stuff. But 
I'd like to think that the world is changing and I think it is. I think it's still got to be pushed to change. I think, you know, there's a great foundation in women founded businesses supporting female founded businesses. There's a great community there. But, you know, I think I'd like to call myself a feminist. I don't know what the definition of feminism is now to um, everybody, but I know what it is to me. And to me, it's about equality for everyone. And that means everybody. I don't want to be above anyone. I don't want to be below anyone. I just want to be equal. And I, I'd like to think that that's the the pattern that we're working to. And 20 years ago, you say you've now uh, come up with the wrong term, but arguably you've kind of pushed through, I suppose, the 20 years in the city and you've managed to, to cut through the male voice. Now, how did you do that? Because there'll be still people out there that are starting business right now that are still struggling to cut through that. How did you do it 20 years ago? Um, yeah, with great difficulty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think the thing is, I think I grew, for want of a better term, a real rhinoceros kind of skin. I think I had to in terms of taking on kind of the the jargon, the banter, yeah. Yeah. as everyone yeah. likes to call it, the good yeah. old banter, which is mainly directed at me. Uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I learned to take that and not that I'm saying that everyone should, um, but I just think that was, it's a case of surviving. And I think um, I had grown up with that kind of survival tra trait. So I found it naturally easy to kind of fit in that, um, into that environment and survive. I think, I also was very conscious at being working harder, probably than most of the guys did that I worked with. In fact, I know I did. Um, I tried harder. Um, I, you know, if anything, I was asked to do anything. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, yeah I'll go there. Yeah, I'll do, you know, that kind of stuff, I think. So I think there is chances that you can break through. I think also, you know, there's a lot of people in certain positions, be it all male, that think they're quite clever and probably they aren't. And I think <laughs> it's, you know, it's easy. I mean, I hate to say it, being sexist myself here, but women love to multitask. So um, it's, a, it's a definite advantage of ours. But I think nowadays, I think, I think there is more of a platform for women. And I do think it's still hard. But I think what's really important is that there's a lot more of female founded societies, female led entrepreneurial kind of forums mm -hmm. that you can join than there was when I was you know, starting in the city. And I think it's really important to use those because there are a lot of women out there that are there to support each other. And I think it's really important. And it sounds like when you left the city, it was not just simply because you didn't enjoy it anymore, but arguably mental health played a massive part in that. It's becoming uh, a topic that more and more people are speaking about. You know, going into the world of entrepreneurship also has an impact on mental health because you are, you know, the life of the soul of the business and working almost 24 hours a day. How do you manage that? Very badly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have to be being honest, don't we, Oliver? Yeah, yeah, yeah very badly. Um, yeah, um, I'm a bit of a workaholic. I think I've always been a bit of a workaholic and um, I'm kind of, you know, boundless is my child, it is my baby, it's everything. Um, yeah, I think when I left the city, I felt quite burnt out. That's that's for definite. And I do have a different balance now in the sense that, you know, I might get still up at six o'clock in the morning and start working, but I'm at home and I'm doing something that I really love and I know that my team really love it too. So there is that different balance. Do I stay awake at night? Of course you do, because, you know, you're thinking constantly, okay, is, is the cash flow right? What about this sale? Is everything, you know, because you are in you are in charge and it is sitting on your shoulders. But then there's also that point that it's quite thrilling. You know, you're kind of like you're you're on the roller coaster and you're up front, aren't you? You know, you're going to take the dive first. You're going to take the biggest swing first and stuff like that. So I think that's you know, I think there's a balance there. But I do you know, I do exercise, I think, which is always really good for your mental health. And then it says either I walk my dog, who is basically more important to me than my husband. <laughs> Likewise with my dog, actually. I'm glad you said that. We've just got a cavapoo and I love it more than my girlfriend, oh. I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think that's a very fair point, I think Oliver. So. I, think so. I say to my husband, if the house is burning down, I'm getting the dog. Yeah. It's every man for himself after that. Yeah, I tend to you know? agree. I tend to agree on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of your team, you say you work from home. Do your team work from home as well, or have you got offices? Yeah. So, so what we do, we've we had we had an office um, in Bristol before lockdown. And um, but we kind of used it on and off, kind of like you could go in it a few days a week or work from home. We got rid of that during lockdown because, quite honestly, from a commercial point of view, it seemed mad, like paying for an office that we obviously couldn't use. We're a startup, you know, yep. fifteen hundred quid a month for an office is a lot of money if you're not going in it. So um, that had to go. And now we've got another office that we use um, just outside of Bristol that uh, we kind of go in maybe one, maybe two days a week, but it's literally down the road. It takes like 10 minutes for me to get there. But I'm kind of quite flexible about people coming in or, or being in there or working from home. I think what's really important is the job gets done. And I know my team will deliver the, on the job. And I think it's really important to have that respect that goes both ways. So I think that's, again, like a thing I learned from the city, which there isn't generally a lot of respect for your colleagues. Yes. So I think it's really important to have that. So, yeah, I think, you know, that balance. And I think we're in a new world, right? We're in a new world where um, people work a different way. And I think it's important to give you to give your team the ability to also have that flexibility in their lives. And you've gone from a team of 30 in the city to a team of sort of eight now that you're managing. In terms of in terms of your management structure and how you do that, what have you learned and how do you manage individuals? Because it's something that so many people get so badly wrong. Yeah, I mean, most most managers shouldn't be managers, right? I've worked <laughs> for enough managers of like, why, why are you a manager? You're just rubbish. Um, yeah, I think, well, I think it's really hard, isn't it? You know, that the fact that you, most people tend to be management because they've kind of gone up in their career, yet they're not very good with people. They're just actually good at their role. They're not good with people. And it's a, it's a whole different sphere dealing with people. So yeah, I, I'm really lucky. Like I say, I've got people that are really good at what they do. And the fact that they know in a startup, we have no egos. That's one of our ethos is at Boundless. There's no egos here. If you know, if you have to do a bit, paint something for a show, then you paint it, and the next day you're talking to Sainsbury's, and that's just how it is, you know. So I think I've got, you know, like I say, Talia, who works with me in a commercial director. She's great. She's really kind of manages our sales team on a day to day basis, and um, and then I tend to deal with like all of our kind of marketing and branding, and uh, with. Um, the managers in their role and stuff like that. I say managers. I mean, I love it. Managers. Everyone's a manager everyone's because a manager. there's no one else. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And in terms of the branding, you've done. You, you just alluded to the fact that you work on that and you do that yourself. Now it's quite um, impactful. It's quite good. Did you design the whole thing from scratch, or did you outsource it to an agency? Oh my god, I'd love to say yes. Absolutely not. I mean, I can hardly even draw. Um, you know, it'd be like stick men. Boundless. What does that represent? So that's not stick one of your people. GCSEs. Then you didn't get arts. No, no I, I mean, that. I kind of like, no, I definitely didn't get art. No, back <laughs> of the class, Miss Mosley. Um, um, no, we had a branding agent um, who designed everything for us called The Collaborators, who are absolutely amazing. And uh, which, you know, absolutely, if anybody's thinking of using someone like that, they are, they are awesome. You may have to sell a kidney, but they'll be worth it, you know, because brand, brand, I mean, branding is so important, you know, it's so impactful. It's, it's, especially when you're looking at a snack because you've got impulse snacking as well. You've got two seconds of someone's time. They've got to notice you on the shelf, but no, they designed everything for us and they still work with us quite a lot, but we manage our kind of like how we want, what the brand needs to say, how that goes forward and how we get that message across, which is obviously really important that, you know, your customer resonates with you as a brand, not just as a product, but as a brand. 100%. Have you had anyone then influential in your life in terms of kind of guiding you, steering you from an advisor point of view, mental point of view? You obviously had your business partner who's not with you anymore, but have you had anybody else that's come in? Um, I have a mentor that I actually speak to that I was introduced to by Talia actually and um, in a, he's, he works for a complete different industry um, but he, yeah he's great he's, he's really good because I think it's I think it's um, really important that you it's almost like having a psychiatrist <laughs> I mean I'd love a psychiatrist I think yeah. they probably have a field day Oliver they probably keep you in there like we need to talk to you a lot longer and how does that make <laughs> you, you know? feel exactly 
<laughs> yeah, you know that. So yeah, so his his yeah he's great. It is like kind of like because there's lots of things that you you need to get off your chest, you need to get out of your head that you can't tell your team, and it's not because you can't tell them because you don't trust them, but it's it's not their responsibility to take on that responsibility. It's yours, and there's there's also that factor that. It's really hard when you're when you're running your own business, and certainly I can only resonate from it from a startup point of view, which is so full on, that you also try to have a balance in your home life in terms of whether that's with a partner or you know whether that's with kids or whatever it is, or you're just your friends, is that you don't just talk about that all the time, because you need to be more than that to them, and and they need to be more than just your sounding block. You know, and I think that's important because you do need to still try and have some fun in a different way. So, yeah, having having a mentor's really helped me, really, because not only does he give me business advice and, you know, kind of even personnel advice, but also kind of like my own well-being advice, which is not always easy to take, but... <laughs> probably really important and how have you trained yourself over the last four years to learn the skills that that you now do because i'm assuming you do a bit of everything from finance through to you know actual sales through to marketing as you've already alluded to did you just kind of figure it out as you went along or did you go on any courses um no um i'm really badly it not savvy i could tell that um, when you tried to get onto this podcast Exactly, Oliver. Yeah. I was hoping you wouldn't mention that, but there you go. Yeah, fair <laughs> yeah. point. Um, yeah, that took two days. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I'm terribly answer. And you know, I mean, and it's probably one of the worst things because working in a dealer room, I used to have like about 10 or 12 screens in front of me, but you just call IT, yeah. you know, it's not working, IT. So you, you kind of get a bit lazy, really. That's what you did, though. Like. You called someone up when you were in front of us a minute ago and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. So yeah, that was, no, I called Liv, yeah. our brand and marketing manager. Slash IT. Very IT savvy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, bit of everything. Muck in, proper startup. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's great. But, um, yeah, okay. In terms of, I mean, I think probably the what, the hardest thing in, in what we're doing and what I had to learn was the world of acronyms. I mean, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> if there isn't an acronym for everything in food, I don't know. If there isn't, I mean, like MOQs, SRPs, D to C, B to B. I mean, you're just like, can someone just say what we are actually talking about? Um, I'm quite, so I was very lucky. Talia, who works for me, as I said, she worked for supermarkets. So she'd worked for like uh, Sainsbury's and Morrison's and stuff like that. So Summerfield. So um, she kind of was up on the lingo to to be fair so she really helped me a lot and taught me a lot and I think yeah the rest we have learned along the way and I'm very like I said I'm very forward forward coming that the fact that I will ask if I don't know I'm not I'm not frightened to say I don't understand what you've just said there (laughs) I often ask that even too much people's dismay (laughs) as in okay we're meant to be having a really serious negotiation and she doesn't know what she's doing, but never mind. Um, <laughs> I, th- I, think it's, I think it's really important because, you know what, so many people just go, yeah, 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 and they come out and go, I haven't got a clue what was just said. And I actually think you'll get more respect from someone being honest because everyone's been in that situation that they don't understand. And then you can kind of write, okay, I've got that, right, okay, look, now we can deal with this. So, yeah, I asked lots. I mean, my team... To be fair, they go on lots of courses. They learn lots of stuff, and then I just phone them, Oliver, and yeah, say, "How'd you do that?" Well, I think that's good. You can't you can't know it all. And in terms of people that are looking to to start a business, obviously you have started a business. You're still very much in that startup stage. What would you say to someone that's about to leave a quarter million pound job in the city? If you have an idea and you're passionate about it, and believe me, you're going to have to eat, sleep, breathe, live it in order to make it work, then you should do it. You know, there is a real inner calling in you. You should do it. But the biggest advice around that is do your research. Know your research. You know, if you've got this idea and you think it can work, well, why can it work? You know, how's it going to work? How are you going to get it from here or on paper to fruition? How it's all about research. And I think you can never underestimate that. We even now, we are constantly doing research, constantly. I mean, I constantly look at flavours and changing and 
what's what's changing for people's appetites and how people are eating and stuff we're constantly learning so to start something you must do your research because you're probably only going to have a small amount of money to start and that money is going to be quite quite tight and you're going to need to spend it wisely and if you've done your research which is free welcome to the world of google (laughs) then or you know out on your out on the street going into stores then that's your time but you will be in a good place. You'll be starting on rock rather than sand. <laughs> I like that. And in terms of when you guys started, I suppose, you went into the healthy eating market at exactly the right time because it's kind of, well, as you rightly said earlier on, booming more and more every every single day. Your growth trajectory over the last four years, what's that look like? Our growth trajectory over the last four years, I mean, online, we've gone up like by about 5,000%, which has been absolutely yeah, astonishing. And in terms of our growth outside of online and retail, we're in the le- level of around three, four hundred percent. So yeah, which you know, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's been massive. I mean, what we what we saw though is during obviously lockdown and pandemic and stuff was that we had started to see a real uptick, obviously in functional snacking, which is where category that we would sit under. And um, as people are becoming more and more aware of their nutrition and their macros and things like that. And and then, of course, being on the go snack during pandemic when no one is actually on the go. Yes. There was a real like mm, yeah. buffers on, you know, we've hit the wall and same for everyone in our peers, really. And um, which is, you know, real shame because obviously there's quite a few businesses out there that didn't make it that we know of and amazing products and should have done but it's, it's a real difficult time but you know ability I think what we were talking about earlier the ability to pivot which I know was obviously a bit of a word for 2020 yeah it was but um yeah exactly was enabled us to do that because obviously we were small enough to to do that yeah. and therefore get reach our customer online very quickly and now that we've left that situation although obviously you know I think we're far from over from um, COVID and what that may bring us all. And I think, you know, we need to be probably aware of that from a business point of view. 100%. And in terms of, in terms of burn rate though, looking at, looking at during the pandemic, then if we take that as an example, were you guys profitable at all? Or did you guys take loans out or how, how did that work? Were you still putting your own cash into it? Yeah, no. So just, just before the pandemic, we were really lucky. We'd raised money. We'd had investment of um, a million pounds, which, you know, was amazing so we were so lucky because we looked we thought about raising money for a while and certainly on the trajectory that we were on we knew we needed um, money as I would say real money and <laughs> uh, yeah that real green yeah. back and uh, we originally thought that we would do that in the summer of uh, 2020 and we we'd kind of accelerated far quicker than we thought at the end of 2019. We're going into Sainsbury's and um, Holland and Barrett and several other stores and um, on a larger numbers. So we kind of brought forward that fundraising. And I think had we not have done that, then it would have been very difficult for us because those stores are great and, you know, again, love working with them and they're brilliant. But during, obviously, lockdown, they really changed how people were shopping. And um, had it been the case that we didn't have that investment, we would have made it really difficult. But we also did lots of other things. I think that lots of people did during that time was there was quite a few government grants out there, which we took, you know, anything that we could get our hands on to, we made the most of. That's interesting. And in terms of during the lockdown then, did you, were you lying in bed? Were you thinking, Christ, I can't get out of bed at the moment because there's so much negativity going on, our industry's not going to survive? Or, you know, how do you pick yourself up when you do have those thoughts? How do you get out of bed in the morning when you just don't want to carry on with essentially work? Well, um, I think you've got to. Yeah, (laughs) I, I think, I think there's no, I mean, I think there's one thing. I think there's the fact that one, we, you know, this wasn't my money anymore. We'd taken people's money. And <laughs> there's a theme in people this podcast, Cathy. Use exactly. other people's money. <laughs> it's a, get them out of the money. Yeah. I think the thing is, though, you know, you've got someone else's money and they, no matter how they've got that money, they've worked hard for it nine times out of ten. And you owe it to them to look after their money. They've backed you and you need to back them. 
And, you know, you've got staff that are relying on you to also pay their bills and you've got to do something. And quite honestly, you come last in that list. And I think it's really important that, you know, when you when you start your own business and you know all of that stuff is that you understand where you are in the pecking order. And you're you know, you're the captain of the Titanic. You're getting off last. You know, you've. You've you've got to commit to everybody else. One hundred percent. And in terms of, I suppose, what you when you started up, looking back, obviously you've committed to everybody now. You now know that. What didn't you know when you started that you kind of wish you did? <laughs> oh my god! How long everything. we got? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything. Everything. Um, what did I wish? Really, the ultimate thing I wish I'd knew. I think I. I think I wish I knew more about. Um, how things are logistically moved. I think that's a, in terms of what we do. Yeah. It's a real misunderstanding because one, it's really expensive <laughs> to list, to move things logistically. And I think we kind of, as a consumer, we just think things pop up on the shelf. I mean, you know, you see a lorry and everything else, but you don't probably understand the mechanics that, you know, every time someone touches your product during the process, they charge you for it. Yes. You know, welcome to Bezos. Yes. He's done all right, hasn't he? Yeah, he's done all right. I mean, he he's phones me all the right. time, Oliver, for tips. I mean, to be I, fair, you know. disappointing. He's only the second richest now, which, to be fair, could work a bit harder. Yeah, lazy. <laughs> lazy. <laughs> yeah, him and Bill Gates. There you go. Two phone books. <laughs> uh, two numbers in your, in your phone book. But going back to a, to a business point of view, yes, logistics are important for your industry, for your sector. I get that. But in terms of from a business standpoint, what, what, what do you wish that you'd have known if you were to start a business again, any business? I think I wish I'd known the level of which it will be with you all the time, that you are completely engrossed in it and that you will it will never leave you. I think that's actually quite important because I think if you're of a disposition that you worry or you are... Um, a person that can't shut the door whether that be doesn't matter about being workaholic it's about shutting the door in your mind I think if you have difficulty doing that then I think it's something is it's very worth while knowing that you won't be able to do that it will always be with you and you've got to learn to live with that so I think that's probably a thing I wish I'd known before and how I was going to manage to balance that I I have now a bit more than I did before but at the very first, yeah, I was a, I was awake a lot. Hundred percent. And what does what does success look like then to uh, to you, Kathy? Regardless of business, what does it look like to you individually? For me, well, for me, it's it's about team, and I know that might sound a bit cliche and everything else, but it really is for me because I think I look back at how I grew up. I grew up in an environment that was all about team as in we pull together, we work hard together and we'll be okay. And then I went into an environment for the first part of my career that was very much not about team. And I think that didn't resonate so well for me. So I was really financially successful and travelled, like I said, the world and everything else. But I wasn't, that wasn't success for me. And that's really, might be, easy to say that when you've got money in the bank and everything else but it, it truly wasn't success for me but success for me looks at my team that my team loved working at Boundless or wherever it was that I worked do you know what I mean yeah. that that's that's the real success that someone isn't dreading coming into work at Boundless or going home unhappy that to me is is the, is the real success and in order to grow your team you need to sell more products so if i want to buy some of your product then kathy where can i go well we are amazon's number one gut health stack so online is always there so you do have jeff in your phone then yeah of course loves me Absolutely. all the tips <laughs> so yeah amazon which is always um you know is that's where everyone likes to shop so we are actually like i say amazon's number one gut health snack for that but in terms and obviously our own website which is um we are boundless.co.uk but in terms of high street you can go into sainsbury's or holland and barrett you can go to john lewis you can get us from Ocado. yeah we're in you know selfridges 
Which of course, no. <laughs> That's excellent. That's a nice three sixty story, isn't it? Being in Selfridges when your dad used to work opposite it. That's fantastic. But it's a very striking package, and it's going to be difficult for for people to miss it because once you've seen it, you just simply can't get it out of your head. But um, I like Boundless. Thanks so much for sending all of the product through to the office. It went pretty damn quickly, so I really appreciate that. And I also, Kathy, appreciate your time on this podcast. You've been truly inspirational. Thank you, Oliver. I've loved it. I could chat all day I'm with you. so good, I, but unfortunately, what is the time? Course to 11. Got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Kathy. Thanks for listening. Coming up next week. When we launched into Selfridges, kind of when I say the business started, because that's when I had, you know, the brand as you see it today was developed. And it was the first time that, like, you know, I had investment and we were really, you know, I had one employee at that point. And it was, hey. it was the most, exactly, it's like, suddenly it's not just you sitting in a room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It feels more real. Share the pain. <laughs> that's exactly it. See you next week, 8am on all podcast platforms. Simply subscribe or ask your smart speaker to play Success is in the Mind podcast. This is a Pinpoint Media podcast presented by me, Oliver Bruce, produced by Dan Miller and Fergus Bruce, edited and designed by Harry Fox and Victoria Bramwell, filmed by Madeline Harris, marketed by Ellie Hanwell and Rachel Buchanan-Hughes and managed by Bethan Wyatt and Annabelle Lawton-Smith. Quite a team. Thanks, guys. If you know anyone you think we should interview, if you want to tell your story or have your say, please reach out to me directly via podcast at pinpoint-media.co.uk. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Cheers, guys.